The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. So, uh, just an introduction to me. Uh, I'm here on staff full-time at Snowbird. I I work uh, downstairs as an office manager, uh, trying to keep things straight and not lose any money or events. But uh, it's been absolutely amazing. I came up here and had the opportunity to uh, speak at the Spring Men's Conference. And uh, we came up here. My wife actually beat me up here by a week. And she came up, and she saw Snowbird, and she saw the mission. And we had already been talking about where the Lord was leading us. And then I came up uh, in the spring, and we had about 150 guys here that weekend compared to what you guys have done where we're sitting probably over 225 now. But uh, it was just amazing to see God work, and and we both knew at that time, like, this is where the Lord was calling us. Uh, So between March of last year and uh, in July, man, we we packed up, we got out of Houston, and we got to North Carolina as soon as we could just because we're so excited about what the Lord's doing here at Snowbird and the ability that we have uh, to just speak into people's lives and youth, and it's been incredible. So uh, background on me, uh, I'm actually from Alabama. Roll Tide. There we go. There's always some. That's all right. Don't hate. You can't all be winners. I'm not, I'm, not doing, I'm not doing a good job making, making many friends before I start, am I? But, uh, yeah, so I grew up in uh, northwest Alabama. And uh, typical small town, you know, like good, good solid place, good upbringing. Uh, in high school, my junior year, we moved out to Katy, Texas, which is just on the outside of Houston out there. And uh, so once we got out to Katy, uh, I graduated from there. And then it was like, all right, well, you slacked in school, so now what are you going to do? So uh, the military was my best option. And I would already made up my mind. Uh, I remember sitting in the ninth grade. I was sitting in a math class, homeroom, homeroom math class, and I watched the second tower fall. And in my mind at that time, like, I couldn't fathom what was happening. Like, you know, I'm, I'm 15, 16 years old, and, and I'm thinking, man, what, these air traffic controllers just take the day off, and things are going crazy, and it didn't make sense. The concept of that, that some, somebody could hate another man so much that they would be willing to, uh, not only to give their lives, but to take lives in mass uh, because of that deep-rooted hatred. I just I couldn't fathom it then. Uh, but once we kind of all bore witness to it and, and we saw what was happening, uh, I decided at that point that whatever came from this, I wanted, I wanted to have a say in it. So uh, I graduated high school and went down to the recruiter's office and said, hey, what can I do? And Took a bunch of tests, and they're like, hey, well, they got this really cool thing now where you can go and uh, you can go and disarm bombs. And they show you all the robots and all the fancy stuff, and you're like, man, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, I, I said, okay, yeah, I want to be explosive ordnance disposal. I want to go disarm bombs. And, and then I got in school, and I was like, this is hard. Like, <laughs> this is really hard. Like, there's a lot of bombs out there. There's a lot of different kinds of them. And, uh, but the Lord just really carried me through it. And uh, he knew what his plans were for me. So uh, me and uh, about three other guys out of, I don't know, 40, 50 guys that we went out through, a few of us made it out the other side. And 
and started our careers there. So I started in Charleston, South Carolina, at Charleston Air Force Base. And that's where, uh, that's where I met my wife. And I, was, I played golf with a guy uh, who we kind of became buddies. But he's like one of those buddies like you, you like to play golf with. And then you don't ever think it's going to go anywhere. Well, now that guy's my brother-in-law, so I have to deal with that a lot. <laughs> and uh, I know he's going to be watching on the live stream. That's why I'm giving him a hard time. But uh, he's an Ohio State fan. I think that's probably why we don't get along most of the time. <laughs> but so, uh, anyways, just so kind of diving in to, uh, to to my story and what I'm here to share is, uh, I believe in life. We we all have this idea of what. Christianity and our faith and our salvation looks like in our own lives and then we go through trials and then we start getting peeled back like an onion and as those trials bear down on us and we have to endure and we have to suffer and we have to push through the other side by the time we get out the other end you're going to start to discover what's at the root like foundationally what do you believe in and it's either going to make or break you Uh, so this is kind of the segue into my story and, and how this played out in my life and uh, my witness and my testimony here. So, uh, like I said, we, I, I joined out of high school about 2003. I, I went into the service, uh, finished up, got into explosive ordnance disposal. By 2006, I was getting ready to go into Iraq for the first time. So we're about three years into the war there. Uh, the surge is happening in Baghdad. Uh, most of the Al-Qaeda guys that are down there are getting pushed up into Bakuba in the region where I was getting ready to go. But I remember before we even left, uh, I had just gotten married that December. Uh, two weeks later, I was in Colorado getting ready to go to, uh, go to Iraq by February, which the Army, in, in its infinite wisdom, will send you to Colorado in January to prepare you for Iraq in August. So it makes perfect sense if you think about it. Uh, so there was about there was about two feet of snow out out on the ground, and uh, so we couldn't get out on the range that day. So we sat in our bunks, and uh, some guys played cards. I started journaling, but it, in this time, like I am a, I'd grown up in a Christian home, and I'd grown up around the Bible, and and I knew some scripture. But I was pretty content at a young age just to go to church on Sundays and let the preacher tell me what the word said. Like, I'd never really read it for myself. Like, I wasn't trying to seek my own understanding. It was, I'm going to read these stories. It was more like a history book to me. Like, I would open up the pages and go, okay, these are the mistakes people have made through history. Don't make these mistakes. These are God's laws. Keep those laws. We can do pretty good from then on. So I hadn't really read the word for myself, but I, I remember so sitting in there and I'm starting to journal, uh, getting ready to go, and I'm writing these things down. And I went back and I read that journal later on. And the things I, write, I was writing down was like, man, like I can't wait to to get to Iraq because I'm going uh, to show these people what Christians are all about, and I can't wait to see these people, and we're going to save lives and we're going to do good things. And I promise you, it did not take about two weeks in that country before all that uh, just naive, really, that naive mentality about what was happening there and, and my own vanity and what I thought I could bring to the table was completely stripped away. So, so 2006, we, we arrived in Cuba. And so just setting the political climate of what's happening this time, all right, the surge is happening in Baghdad. 
Al-Qaeda's getting pushed up into Bakuba. Uh, there's a heavy presence there. They'd actually overthrown one of the t- towns there called Baritz. They had overrun the police station. Like, they are running the show up in that area. But at the same time, the Sunni and the Shia civil war is kicking off. So you have two different sects of Islam that are in contention, and they're killing each other every night. Uh, so we showed up, and this place is a madhouse. Like, it is a free-for-all. Everybody is killing everybody. And I, I specifically remember... Uh, where the switch flipped in my head where I was like, this is not going to play out the way I thought it was. Is, of course, our job was to, to disarm roadside bombs or any of the IDs that we found. So we got a call out to a traffic circle out there. And we go, and go to this traffic circle expecting to find this suspect package or box that they think is a device. And we open it up, and it is a box of severed heads where – the uh, Sunnis had came through that night and went into Shia homes, and they had just murdered families. And they took their heads and they put them in a box and left them in the traffic circle to intimidate everyone else, uh, to let them know that they were coming through. And it was just brutal what you saw men do to each other. So then you, you start catching yourself. You're like, man, like this, this isn't what religion in America looks like. Like this isn't what Christianity looks like. But these people seem super convicted about what they believe in enough to the point that they're willing to kill themselves, they're willing to kill anybody else over it. Uh, So the way that kind of transpired is later on that that year, we we went after a high-value target and... Because we're live, live streaming it, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, not gonna name names. But we went after a high value target, who was the number one guy at the time. And what happened is, is we we were able to to take him out, but there was a lot of collateral damage that came with it. Uh, there was women and children involved, and the way it played out wasn't the way the news portrayed it, and it wasn't the way the story was sold. But being on scene there, I'm telling you, at at 21 years old. Walking out and putting three- and four-year-old little girls in the body bags to carry them away was devastating to me. Like, it crushed me. Like, I had, I had a, a niece at the time who was about that age. So, to me, it just it broke my heart to see it. And I didn't know what to do with that emotion, right? Like, I'm already amped up. We're, we're in combat. I've got adrenaline going. Like, you're pumped all the time. You're, you're not always around the best influences in the world, and, and your mind is switching. You're, you've got to change gears to be aggressive and go after things. And I just started getting angry, and I got more and more angry. And the more anger I had, the more I was looking for somebody to blame because that's what we do, right? Like Brody talked about in Genesis last night. Like, what do we do? We shed responsibility. Like God came to Adam. He's like, what did you do? And he's like, is that woman you gave me? Like, you're the one that gave her to me. That's her fault. And he goes to Eve, and he's like, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And Eve's like, it's a, she's a snake that made me do it. snake told me to. Like, it's, in, it's just rooted in us that we like to pass responsibility off of ourselves and onto someone else. So I'm starting to do the same thing, right? I'm angry. I can't really resolve this in myself, so somebody's got to be to blame. So I started to get this idea in my head. And the idea was, is like, man, I don't know if God's sovereign. I don't know if he's really controlling all this because it seems like there's a lot going on right now that he should care about, and it doesn't really seem like he cares. See, the mistake I was making is I was mistaking the actions of man for the inactions of God. It's completely backwards, right? When you see people do something wrong, why is it that we always resolve to go, well, God's just not, he doesn't care about it. 
No, like, you need to understand, like, you're living in a broken world and a broken system, and this is the results of the fall, and you have to be courageous, and these are the things that you're called to battle. But instead of battling these things, we kind of shy away from them, and we just point the finger, and we go, well, God's the one who has the power to do it. He should be the one that's doing something about this, not me. Like, that's not my responsibility. But either way, I bought that lie, like, hook, line, and sinner. Like, Satan threw this thing out there and was like, hey, how about this idea? Does that work for you? And I said, yeah, that works for me. I'll buy that. So I just completely step away from the faith. I'm like, you're right. I still believe there's a God, but if he's up there, he's completely uninterested in me. Uh, I don't believe he's as powerful as he says he is. But whatever it is, it's just going to play out the way it plays out. And what that did is it created this gigantic void in my life. Where Christ and my faith had been such a foundation through my youth now I've got this big gaping hole that has to be filled. And it's not like a gaping hole where it's just this cavity you have to fill. Like, the way, the way I can express this feeling is more like a black hole. Like, are you guys kind of familiar with how black holes work? Like, it is this giant force that will suck in anything remotely close to it, and it will consume it, and there will be nothing left, and then it will strive for more. Right? It is just this sucking void, right? And that's what I started to turn into where I was just trying to fill my life with absolutely everything I could to fill this void. So I come back uh, about two months later on in that trip. I end up getting hit in the leg, and um, it breaks my leg. We didn't even find, find out it was broken until a couple years later. Uh, but it broke my leg, so I spent a couple months uh, just kind of riding up in the gun turret and limping along. Uh, but in this time, like, this became an introduction uh, for pills to me. So I started, you know, getting opiates and things like this to deal with nerve pain. And I kind of carried that back whenever I went home. So I go back home. I haven't, I've been married at this point for about eight months. And I've seen my wife all of two weeks of that. Um, we had a kind of a long distance relationship in the dating process. So we really don't know each other. Not only do we really not know each other, now I'm a completely different man than the man she married. So she is so thrown off. Like she's like, I have no idea what's going on here. So we get back, uh, I get back to Italy, I'm living in Italy at the time, I get back there and now the pills just aren't doing it anymore, right? Like I'm trying to deal with this stress and, you know, what they, today they diagnose as like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? I'm trying to process all these things that have happened, but it's too painful to do it. And I really don't want to sit and dwell on this, these old agonizing ideas and the things we witnessed. So what you do is you just mask them, right? Like this is what substance do for us. Substance is just another excuse for us not to deal with our problems. And I know that there are men in here, and you can completely relate to this. And, and the reason I come up here and I, and I humble myself and, and bear this is because I understand that my story is not my own. Like this is Christ who's worked a good work in me, and I need to be faithful and honor that. But what I want you guys to take from this is the same salvation and the same grace that Christ showed me is available to you. So as this story plays out, like, if you start feeling this conviction or this guilt, like, yeah, I've been into this addiction, I've been into this, I've been into that, like, you need to understand that there is salvation and there is forgiveness, and the Lord forgives our iniquities. So just bear into this and understanding that this is a story of grace and forgiveness, right? This is not a story of condemnation. So, uh, so I get back, right? I get back, and now I'm, I'm pouring alcohol on top of the pills, and I'm really just, like I said, masking all my emotions. And my, my wife at the time, uh, we're, starting to have, we're starting to butt heads, right? We're really starting to grind. Um, 
not living in the home well. I am completely absent emotionally, just checked out, don't want to communicate, don't want to talk about anything. Um, as wives can do a lot of times, they will do anything to try to jolt you and get a reaction out of you. So she's provoking. She's trying to do anything to get me to talk and open up. And, and I just complete shut, completely start shutting down and isolate myself from my, from my wife. Uh, it got to the point where uh, we were talking about her just going back, uh, living with her mom and dad, and, and this marriage probably wasn't going to work. So we, it, we wouldn't even last a year. And then we got up one morning, and uh, she came in to me, and she told me that we were, we were going to have a kid. And I was like, okay, well, that's a game changer right there. Like, we're getting ready to have a kid. We need to start thinking about this more seriously. So we did. We had our oldest son. Uh, he's awesome. He's really funny, really articulate. Uh, but I, as I masked my problems, I remember Brooks had just been born, and it's kind of a painful story to tell. Brooks had just been born. Brooks is about probably about two or three months old at the time. But my routine was I would get off of work, and then I would go get whatever pills I could get my hands on, and then I would go get a bottle of whiskey, and then I would just start drinking. And I would eat dinner and sit on the couch and drink until I fell asleep. And I did that every night, most nights a week. And that particular night, my wife was tired, and she said, hey, can you, can you take the baby? And I said, yeah, I can take the baby. And we had this little short couch that we'd lay on. And I would drink, and I'd get tired, and then I'd just kind of put him on my chest, and I'd fall asleep. Well, that night I woke up to screaming, and I had passed out drunk on, on the couch, and I had dropped him. And it wasn't a long fall, and it didn't, didn't hurt him bad, but it woke me up. It woke me up fast, where I was like, you are going down a slippery slope really quick, like to the point where you're putting your kids in danger because you can't get a control on this substance abuse. So I cleaned up for a little while and tried to do things right. But as we all know, like separate of Christ, like you're striving in vanity. Like you can't fix things by yourself. You were never intended to do that. So I'm trying to fix things by myself. And the more I try, the more frustrated I get. But I keep going, no, I can do this. I can do this. Like I don't need God. I got this. I can handle it. And I couldn't handle it. It was clear that I couldn't handle it. So... You know, we're, we're thinking, hey, we just need to get away from the isolation, right? We need to get back to the States. Uh, so I got orders from out of Italy back to Georgia, and, and we're thinking, hey, like, this is going to fix it. Like, we're going to be more comfortable. We're going to be more in our culture, more in our zone. It'll be nice. So we moved to Georgia, and I'm not there a couple months, and I, I get orders to, to go back overseas. So I go to Afghanistan. Uh, first time in Afghanistan, I mean, it's, it's eye-opening, Right? I mean, a lot of us had this mentality that if you had been to Iraq, Afghanistan was a cakewalk. Like, nothing was going to be any worse than that. No, it's just, it, it's just a completely different kind of hell is what it is. I mean, it, it's two completely different styles. And so what I learned there is men hate each other just the same. Men are still capable of, of destroying each other and just living out of their wickedness and their greed and their sin. And it doesn't look any different. And in a lot of ways, it looked worse. It looked a lot worse. So I come back. After six months there, I come back, and nothing has changed in my life. Uh, not, not spiritually, not physically. I mean, all, I, all it is is I kind of come back a little bit more beat up, a little bit more broken. And, and I have more excuses. 
right? That's all it is. I'm just piling on more excuses. I have that many more reasons to drink. I have that many more reasons to take pills. I don't need to talk to anybody because therapists say I don't need to talk to anybody. Like, I can talk in my own time. Like, I'm being fed this constant enabling attitude where I can just do whatever I want. Like, you, yeah, you, you deserve that. Like, you do. Absolutely, yeah. You went, you, you fought. Yeah, you deserve that time. You deserve this. So I'm constantly making excuses for myself to live the way I'm living. So as we went over, uh, I met a guy on the way as we went into the country, into Afghanistan there, and uh, his, name, his name was Phil, and Phil was awesome. Like, everybody loved Phil. And we became friends. Um, he had a lot of close buddies on, on the team with us. And as we came to the end of that tour, my wife was getting ready to have our daughter, Isabella. So she had been pregnant uh, all while I was gone. We were getting really close to the due date. So command came to me, and they said, hey, we know you guys are getting ready to go home. We think we got an option for you. I said, we know your daughter's about to be born, so you can go with this Canadian team to go on this mission early on uh, up north of Kandahar province. You can go up there with them. And once you finish up that, we'll put you on a plane. We'll fly you, fly you home for your daughter's birth. Or if you want to go see Phil, Phil's getting ready to do this poppy eradication. You know, poppies are the, the plants they use to make heroin and export it. They're, one of the, they're the number one exporter of drugs in, the, in that part of Asia. So they're getting ready to do poppy eradication. Like, you can go hang out with Phil, and you guys can do this together. And I was like, man, that would be cool. But I'm going to see Phil soon, so I'm just going to pass on that and go back and, and do what I should and, and get back and be there for my daughter's birth. So I leave Afghanistan, I fly home. That next morning, I believe is when it was, the next morning my phone rings, and it's a guy named Kevin. Kevin's on the phone. He's like, hey, man, you know, you know Phil? I was like, yeah, I know Phil. And he said, man, uh, Phil, Phil died this morning. And I was completely broken. I mean, even to this day, like, I remember that feeling. Like, it was guilt and it was shame and it was just brokenness all over me where I was like, what did I do? Like, is this my fault? Like I should have, I had the opportunity to be there. Would it, would things have been different if I was there? So I start piling on this guilt and shame on myself. But at the same time, I'm doing the same thing to God. I'm like, where were you? Like, what were you doing? How did you mess this up? Like this guy's married. He has kids. Do you not care about that? Like, he is two weeks away from coming home, and, and you're just going to let him die. Why? So, again, like, I'm getting more and more angry. And, again, I'm directing my anger and my brokenness towards God. And, like, I don't understand why you're allowing me to suffer. I don't understand why you're allowing other men to suffer this way. Like, where are you? I'm getting mad. So, like I said, my wife's, uh, my wife's getting ready to, uh, to have our daughter. And uh, at the same time, Phil is making his way back home, and he's going to be buried in Arlington. So I tell my wife, I was like, "Hey, I need to, uh, I need to make it up to Arlington. I need to go, I need to go bury Phil." And this creates some huge tension in our home. And if you guys think about what's kind of been playing out in our house, right? Like I've put my wife on the back burner for my career and for my own addictions and everything else for the past, at this point, for about the past two years, where I've just been constantly shoving her away. 
So I've already created this mess where my wife sees my, my service in the military and the things that I need as constantly in conflict with her. So whenever I tell her, like, I need to go to Arlington, I need to be a part of this, the only thing she, thing she realizes is that, hey, I'm about to have a baby, and where are you going to be when that happens? But I'm so wrapped up, I'm like, I just need closure in this. Like, I have to be a part of this. So this, this creates a lot of strife in the, in the home. And it went unresolved. And that's the worst thing you guys can do. I'm telling you, like, if you have tension in your marriage, like, the best thing you can do is address it on the spot and say, hey, you say this, this is how it makes me feel, is this the way you intended it, and hash those things out right now because I can tell you what happened to us is that one, like, seriously, that one incident right there went unsaid for about four years and completely sank our marriage because we had so much resentment for each other in that time, and we just didn't talk about it. I felt completely unsupported in what I needed to do to get closure for the death of a friend, and she felt completely unsupported that she was getting ready to have our child, and she felt like I was absent. And it sank us. We didn't talk about it. So we went our different ways. I went to Arlington, made it for Phil's funeral, came back, still made it home for the birth uh, of Isabella, beautiful, blonde-headed little girl. She's hilarious. Um, but I made it back for all that. But it didn't change things in the home, right? We, uh, the conflict in our marriage just continued to drive us further and further apart. And the alcohol wasn't fixing it. And the pills weren't fixing it. And all the validation I was seeking in work and the things I did, that wasn't feeling it anymore. So I had to go somewhere else, or I felt like I had to go somewhere else. So I started taking as many temporary assignments as I could. Like every chance I had to go train, I would go train. Because if I'm pouring into my work, then I'm going to have success there. Right? When we feel unqualified in the home, we're going to naturally be drawn to the places we feel most qualified. Right? If I feel unqualified as a husband and a father, but I feel qualified at work, I'm going to spend a lot more time at work because that feels good. Like it doesn't feel good at home if you feel unqualified and you feel unable to do your tasks. Right? Nobody would want to stay in a job where they felt like they couldn't couldn't perform, right? We'd probably leave that job and go find something we'd be more successful at. Well, as I became more and more unqualified in the home, I just spent more and more time at work and as much time as I could away from the house because the house made me uncomfortable. Marriage made me uncomfortable. Like, all it was was just this big gaping spotlight on everything that I wasn't doing right. So I just spent more time away. And with that came more partying, more drinking, more drugs, just staying completely off as long as I could. And whenever the, Brody talked about last night, like whenever, whenever our greatest fear is that we're not going to be fulfilled in one place or we're not capable in one place, like we're going to start worshiping those things that validate that and try to tell us we're okay. Well, my greatest fear was that I wasn't a good man. So the minute I came across anyone or anything that would tell me, like, you're, yeah, you're a good person, I would attach myself to that because that was the hope I was clinging to. Like, I wasn't clinging to hope, hope as in the hope of Christ, Savior of the world. I was clinging to hope as in hope, well, this is going to make me fulfilled for the next 10 minutes. This is going to make me good for the next hour, the next day. So rightfully so, the first time I go out and I have some young woman who comes along and says, yeah, yeah, you're a good man. You're cool. Like, I, I don't know what your wife's problem is. You're good. I just completely fell into that temptation. So about, I'm guessing, probably four years into my marriage, 
now I'm all, not, not only are we so divided as it is, like I'm, I'm starting to get sunk into an affair. I'm starting to pursue, pursue another woman. And eventually over the years that turned into more than one woman. Because I had this huge void in my life that I'm trying to fill up with anything I can. Right? If an adulterous relationship makes me feel good and makes me feel like a man, then I'm going to get that validation as a man. If my job makes me feel like a man, that's where I'm going to go find that validation. If by drinking and partying I feel like a man, well, that's where I'm going to go. Which the, none of that is any picture of what a man is supposed to be. It's what the world tells us it's supposed to be. It's this machismo idea like, that. oh, if I do these, all these great things and as, as long as I keep fighting hard and, you know, I'm a service member, like, I'm expected to drink. I'm expected to run around. I'm expected to do all these things. Like, I start believing this cultural lie that it is completely acceptable for me to live the way I live my life because of who I am. Right? I'm not following the kingdom of God. I'm following the kingdom of me. Like, I'm just building my kingdom. I'm making myself the God of it. Like, it's whatever I want to do. And you're either going to get out of the way or I'm going to step on your back to get what it is I'm trying to pursue. So now my, my marriage is in shambles, right? Uh, I'm riddled with guilt. Like, I'm, I'm masking it with everything I can. Uh, but I get sent back overseas in, in 2010. And, and this time is a little different. Uh, they, they call us up and they're like, hey, no more robots, no more fancy techniques. Like, we're going down into the vineyards of southern Afghanistan and we're going to work with these uh, Canadian recon guys, uh, the infantry teams, and they're out on, out on the ground walking and you're going to be out on the ground walking. So you better get comfortable with manual, manual entry. So taking bombs apart by hand and using uh, remote lines to, to move and it's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. There's a lot of things in, in combat that you can see and you can deal with, and, and they, don't, they don't affect your psyche if you have a, a reprieve, right, if you have a retreat, some place to kind of go and reset. This tour, that tour was unique from all the others in the fact that for eight months, like, I had no reset. Like, we never got out of it. Like, we lived in this mud compound in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by villages that were Taliban-friendly, and we had to go in, and we had to patrol, and we had to do it all on foot. And when a vehicle gets hit, man, that's bad enough. But when you're out walking and guys are stepping on these things, it's catastrophic. And when it's your job to go in and to make it safe and to clear it, it's double duty. Not only are you seeing men dying and being mangled, but every time it happens, you feel like it's your fault. Like, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. I should have found that. I should have beat them to that. So I'm getting this double, double dose, right, of, of trauma and stress, but I'm also starting to feel a lot of guilt. Like, man, like, am I even capable of doing this? But through that trial... And during that time, this was like the first time where I really, the Lord rocked me back on my heels and showed up and came for me. And, and I remember it to this day. We had, uh, we had been in the country, we'd been in the country for about two months. And our sister team went out and uh, they were working, working in a compound. A device went off and uh, all three guys were casualties. One of them one of them died. Uh, two of them, 
were severely wounded. And uh, the only reason I'm not, not saying their names is because this is live streaming and, and I don't want to put that out there. But these were, these were friends, of, friends of ours, right? So we kind of shake it off. We're like, okay, we got to keep moving. Ten days later, the team that goes out to replace them has the same thing happen. Another death and another team completely gone. And I'm like, man, this is, this is bad. Like, we came with seven teams and we're like down to five now. And I've got these, these Afghan partners that are working with us. And the, and the day that shifted everything is I remember whenever we weren't out on patrol because of the medical training that we had, we would volunteer in our only med tent, which was on the post, and we'd go in and we'd try to help out as much as we could whenever there was mass casualty situations or guys came in with gunshot wounds or IED blasts or things like that. And I remember some of our Afghan counterparts had, had, been, uh, had been shot up and, and blown up, and they come rolling in. And I've got this guy on a gurney, this young Afghan soldier, and he's probably in his early 20s. And he's been blown up. He's got, uh, he's got big gaping wounds in his chest cavity. His lungs collapsed. He's bleeding to death. And I'm bagging him, and I'm trying to get, get air going, right, and we're trying to stop the bleeding. And I'm looking at the monitor, and I'm watching his heart rate drop, and I'm watching his blood pressure drop, and he's just slipping away. I remember looking into his eyes, and he's just mummering, right? He's just like, Allah, Allah, Allah. And he's like praying to his God, but he's praying to this God that doesn't exist, right? And as the life's like starting to fall away from him, and he's starting to slip away, like I see the fear. Like I see the fear of death in his eyes. And I see a man who's dying with no hope. And I know, and I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, if what I believe is true, what I used to believe is true, not only is this man, like, dying in fear right now, like, this man is dying, and as bad as he's suffering right now, it is nothing in comparison to where he's about to go. And that shook me. Like, shook me to the core where I was like, now is the day, like, you need to start figuring this out. Like, you need to decide where you're truly rooted in. Like, what do you really believe? And uh, my mom had sent me, this little camouflage Bible that I carried with me. And it just kind of stayed in a box out on the front porch of our tent. I remember I came back and I just, I couldn't get over it. I'm like, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in the tent. I've got blood all over my pants. And the guys are like, you need to go shower. Like you need to go clean up. Like you are, you're a mess. And I'm just sitting there. And I grabbed that Bible and I went in my little bunk space and I got down and I said, Lord, like, if you're there and you're for me, like, I need to know something. Because two good friends of mine have died in the past 10 days. And guys are being blown up. And, like, I'm really starting to believe, like, I'm not going to make it home. And I'm watching these guys that I'm supposed to protect, and I'm watching them die. And I have zero control over it. And I'm watching men die in fear and without hope. And I don't want to be that way, whatever it is. I need to know one way or another. So I opened up that Bible, and I came in, and what I turned to was Philippians 2.12. It said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And that was it, right? Like he brought me to my knees. And he said, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And not fear and trembling of a man who's trying to die, but fear and trembling of a man who's in the presence of a sovereign God, the creator of the universe, and the fact that he's invited you to have conversation with him. Like, do you understand the weight of that? Like the sovereign creator of the universe gave his son to die for your sins so that you could have access to him. Like, I had this picture of a God of wrath, but when I sit down and I read this verse and fear and trembling of this reverent God, now I understand, like, this is a God of love. Like, this is a God who gave his son to die for my sins and my iniquity to bridge the gap so that I can have access to him. Like, who am I? So I started to, started to feel it, right? Like, okay, all right. All right, I can do this. I can do this. My, I'd also, uh, my mom had also sent me a book called Point Man uh, by Farrar. So I started reading this book, Point Man, and, I, and I'm starting to get into it, right? I'm like, okay, like biblical leader of the home. Like, I got this. I can do this. I can do this. So what was the problem with that statement? I can do this, right? The Lord is crying out to me, and he's like, Seek me out with fear and trembling. Like, I'm here for you. And I'm like, yep, you're here for me. Okay, like, just back me up. I got this. Like, the Lord is not interested in being your backup. He's being interested the Lord of your life. So I come home and I start to do it on my own and try to do it on my own and try to get clean on my own and try to fix my marriage on my own. And I don't have the ability to do it. But I'm still trying to fix it by myself. What happens with this is whenever we go into those situations, right, where we're trying to fix things on our own and we're trying to do it on our own, is we start moving towards this response, right? Like everything was hinged. My success, what I thought was success, was all hinged off this idea of if I can get my wife to react this way, then I'll, I'll know I've got it done, right? If I can get my kids to react this way, like I'll know. Like that will be my validation. That will confirm that I'm doing the right thing. But the problem with that is the minute you don't get that validation, the minute you don't get the response that you were looking for, like, it's so quick to throw it away. You're like, well, that didn't work. I guess i got to move on to something else. So things, I was trying to make things work better in the home, but I was doing it without Christ, so I was just toiling. Like, I'm just digging, right? Nothing's really making any progress. Nothing's happening. So I get a call at work uh, one morning. And my wife is packing up the kids, and she's getting ready to leave. So I come back home and like, no, no, like, don't leave. Don't leave. Don't take the kids. Like, what are you doing? Like, I thought things were good. And she's like, no, things aren't good. Like, I can't stand to be in the same house as you. I'm like, what? I'm not doing anything. Like, I'm not abusive. I don't yell. Like, I don't do She's like, exactly. Like, you don't do anything. You are completely emotionally absent. Like, nothing affects you. You don't show love, you don't show anger, you don't show any of those things. Like, you're just completely shut off. It's like, I'm not going to live with that. So what do, you, what do you want me to do? Like, I'll do whatever you want. Again, I'm trying to fix it, right? She's like, you, you need counseling. We need counseling. I was like, okay, let's do it. So we go to counseling. We do this, we probably go to about 10 sessions, right? And, uh, and it helps. It helps. Like, we're, we're getting better. We sought Christian counseling. But again, at the end of the day, I'm such a prideful man that I still am trying to do it on my own. 
Like, I'm still trying to do this. So it cleans things up for a while, but it just doesn't ever fix anything. So in 2013, I get a phone call. Uh, one of my leaders, well-respected guy, love him to death. I'd do anything for him. And he called me and he said, hey, we're trying to get a group of guys together uh, to support uh, the special forces group over in Afghanistan in about two months. Are you willing to go? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm willing to go. Like dream job, right? Of course I want to go with those guys. So got spun up, got ready to go. And, and by the spring of 2013, I'm with third special forces group over in Afghanistan. And these guys are amazing. Like I talk to these guys on a weekly basis still. We're close friends. I mean, it is, it is truly, you know, a unique brotherhood there. Just the bonds that are built when men are in combat together and you're fighting for each other's lives. Like any of the guys, I know there's guys in here. I saw bracelets when guys were coming in. Like I know there's guys in here uh, who have served before and they can attest to this fact that whatever political or uh, religious, like whatever, all these values that people say they join the service for, all that goes away on the battlefield and it becomes about the guy on your left and the guy on your right and nothing else. Like absolutely nothing else. Like, he loves you, you love him, we're going to fight together, and we're going to win because I'm going to be sure that you're going to come home with me. And that's it. Everything else goes out the window. It's that simple. But, man, we, like, we bonded. I love these guys. Like, they were all my brothers, and to this day, all these guys are my brothers. Like, this is my family. There's one in particular, though. His name was George, and George was unique. Like, George is 20 years, special forces. Like, the guy was awesome, right? He, uh... He had a great personality and a great leadership style. He, uh, just <laughs> some of the, like, one of the funniest things that we used to love about George is it was freezing cold up there in the mountains at nighttime. But George would go take a shower and decided that he needed to air dry everywhere he went. So he would streak across camp in the middle of the night. And it was not a big deal to him to walk through the operations cell while everybody's in there doing their work computer and just stroll through it like it wasn't a big deal. And we thought, it was the, we thought it was the funniest thing. One, because this guy's, like, calling the shots. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it was just his personality, the way he carried himself. And uh, he, he didn't know a stranger. Everybody loved him. So uh, he was really kind of the father figure on that team to a lot of men. And he was the glue that held that team together. And so, so I, get, I got sick uh, about halfway through that. You know, we're, we're eating local, local food. We're trying to drink water out of the wells there and use whatever we can to, to clean it up, iodine, chlorine, whatever. So inevitably we all get sick from drinking well water out there. So I'm hurting one morning, and uh, they're like, hey, like we know you're bad sick. Um, I'd lost like 30 pounds in a matter of a few weeks. I was that sick. They said, we know you're hurting. Like just We're doing an easy patrol tomorrow. Like We're just going to top the ridge right there, drop in, see what they're doing over there, and then we're going to come back. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to sleep in. Door gets kicked in about an hour later, and they're screaming and yelling, get up, get your kid on, let's go. And we start running that way, and I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. But the guys had topped over the ridge and, uh, and gotten in contact. And when it was all said and done, George, the glue, the 20-year guy who had been on our team, George was shot and killed. And it was devastating to the entire team. I mean, this was our father figure. And uh, the, the team at that point, like, such a solid group of guys. Like, 
so go-getter, like so motivated. Like they're like the best thing we can do for, for George is just to continue to press on. And that was served as a good distraction, right? Like we're just going to be as, as hard and mean and violent as anybody else in this valley, and we're going to go win, and we're going to go win for George. So as broken as we all were over George's, George's death, three days later we went up into the Tangy Valley. And uh, the Tangy Valley, if you guys ever look it up, it's a notoriously bad valley in Afghanistan. Um, always has been contested, probably always will be contested. But we go up, and there was a certain spur that kind of went out that we would, we would go to a lot of times. And just about every time you went up there, it was going to be a gunfight. They didn't want you in the valley. You didn't want them coming out of the valley. So you just kind of have this hilltop experience here where we'd fight, fight over this little piece of territory. So we went up there for this operation. And we're, a, we're up there about 10 minutes. And then we start, start hearing these guys talking on the radio that they're getting ready to make a run at us. So we kind of start setting up and prepping. And then just it all breaks loose. And in the beginning of that battle, like, there's a gap there where I don't remember exactly how this played out, and I don't remember a lot of what happened. But I know that I was on the far right flank of our, of our team up there. And I found myself on my back with my machine gun off to the side, the belt broken off. And I just, all I know is I just got laid out. And what it was is there was a dishka, you know, basically a, a 50 caliber, Russian-made 50 caliber, down in the valley that had opened up on us. And that dishka had put around through my little fighting position there. And whenever the round came through, it got my helmet, hit my machine gun. Machine gun hit me in the face, kind of laid me out. So I got in yard cell by this thing. And I am laying out on my back, and I'm like, man, what just happened? And I hear the round snapping overhead, right? PKMs, RPGs, like they're unloading, and I'm hearing it all go over. And I lay there, and I'm like, I don't want to get up. Like, I just want to lay here. Because if I stick my head up, like I might get shot. And that didn't last for two seconds when this voice in my head said, that's your family. Like, that's, it's not about you. Stop making it about you. You've always made it about you. It's not about you. Get up and fight. So I threw that belt together. I got up. That fight went on into the night. It went into the next morning. It was a long one. But we finished the fight, and everybody that went up on that mountain came off that mountain in one piece. And that was something to be proud of. So I came back. I said, you know what? It's time for me to get out of the service. I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm beat up. Um, I, I don't want to spend the next 10 years missing out on my kids growing up. And if I'm going to have any chance of holding my marriage together, I can't go overseas again. Like, I can't put her through it anymore. So I decided to get out, and uh, I took a job in oil and gas in Houston, Texas. Uh, so we moved out to Katy. And, uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm thinking, like, this is going to fix it, right? Like, if I just get away from this scene, it's going to fix it. It doesn't matter that I'm still drinking and I'm still taking pills and all these things that I tried to get away from back when the Lord convicted me three years prior. Like, I'm already falling back into that same stuff. But now, it, even to the point, like, I'm doing this stuff more heavily now that I'm out because there's no consequences, right? Like, I'm not worried about losing my job if I drink too much. Now, because the way I'm working, like, I go out, I'm, off, I'm offshore for two weeks, and I come home, and I'm home for two weeks. And my two weeks at home, nobody's going to mess with me. So I can kind of do whatever I want. So I fall into this routine of doing the same things over and over again. 
my wife, probably in her last like fleeting attempt to talk any sense into me, she said, hey, there's this guy that I met at the gym that I really think you should meet. I was like, okay. He's like, well, he's going to be at, he's going to be at Brody, who's our third child. He's like, he's going to be at Brody's first birthday or second birthday, whatever it was. Like, he's going to be at his birthday party. So this guy, Les, his name is Les Stretch. Les rolls up, and Les has got on, like, I remember a straight bill purple ball cap, a gray polo shirt, and, like, these golf shorts and really nice white tennis shoes. And I was like, oh, heck no. Like, <laughs> that ain't happening. Les, to this day, like, Les loves to talk, tell the story because <laughs> my wife, we got in the car. She's like, what do you think about Les? And I was like, that dude is soft, like soft. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why you thought we would ever get along or ever get together, but that ain't happening. Like, we are two, cut from two different cloths. So we didn't speak for six months probably. But uh, I went to the gym one, uh, one afternoon, and he was there. And somebody had told me that Les would always get a group of guys together at his house. And, you know, I didn't have any friends in the area. And I was like, that might be a nice way to, like, at least m- meet some guys and so I approached Les. I said, hey, man, I hear you have some, like, guys at your house every so often. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're thinking about getting some guys together. I was like, okay. I said, well, let me know. So uh, my wife had been friends with his wife, and they had been talking. And he went home and told his wife that uh, he had talked to me. And she's like, you better take that guy to breakfast, like, in the morning, first thing. So he calls me up. He's like, hey, man, how does breakfast sound? And I was like, heck, yeah. Like, I'm good for a free breakfast. So we – uh <laughs> just being honest <laughs> he was dressed nice I knew he had money I was like he's going to take me to get a good breakfast so uh, again like the whole thing like just continues to play out like I remember we were in the line and we are going to get our breakfast and I get up there and they're like well, what do you like I was like I'll have a cup of coffee and uh, I was like oh, can I get, a, get some chicken waffles and I was like yeah that's good so uh, he gets up there and he's like yeah I'd like a uh, can I get a a cup of coffee and some uh, eggs Benedict. And I was like, I don't even know what eggs Benedict is, but I wouldn't order it. I know that much. <laughs> so, uh, so we sit down at the table, right? And, uh, I'm stuffing my face with waffles and syrup and chicken. And he's either there eating like lettuce and tomato and whatever comes on the egg Benedict. I still don't even know what it is, but, uh, so we're sitting there eating and he looks up at me and he puts his fork and his knife down. He's like, so tell me your story. I was like, well, what do you mean my story? He's like, he's like, who are you? Like, tell me who you are. And I started telling him, you know, like the surface level stuff that guys do, right? This is where I work. This is where I come from. And he was just kind of like, okay, what else? What else? And he just kind of kept going. About an hour and a half later, I find myself at that breakfast table crying. Like, I don't even know this guy. But I'm telling him my whole life story. I'm telling him things that nobody knows at this point. And the craziest thing is, is this guy sitting across from me, and he doesn't know me from Adam, and he is crying with me. And I'm like, what is happening right now? Like, I haven't cried in five years. I'm sitting at a breakfast table in a public restaurant crying, and this guy who doesn't even know me is crying with me. Like, why is he crying? Like, what does he have to do with it? But it's like... This is, 
this is the first time in a long time, like, I'm seeing what real biblical manhood looks like. Like, this is a man who's taking time to invest in me, and he's rejoicing when I rejoice, and he's being brokenhearted, and he grieves when I grieve. Like, his heart was broken for the suffering in my own life because he's seen me walk without Christ and just completely run my marriage and my family into the ground. And it broke his heart. So we, we, finished our, we finished our breakfast, and he said, I don't know if it's worth it to you. He's like, but it, w- would it be worth, would it be worth 10 weeks, 10 weeks out of your life to figure out who God really is? I said, oh, maybe. He's like, well, who do you think God is? Like, what's your view of him? I was like, I mean, he's, he's powerful. He's like, what do you think he's for you? I was like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, yeah, he's, he's for me. But really, my picture of God is that, was that, he's just waiting to drop the hammer on me every time I make a mistake. Like, I'm like, as soon as I screw up, he, he's going to make me pay, or he's going to make somebody else in my life pay. Like, every time I mess up, he either takes someone that I love away from me, or I suffer for it. Again, I'm pointing the finger, right? I'm pointing the blame. It's not about me. It's somebody else who's doing this to me. He said, okay, will you take 10 weeks to, like, really figure out the character of God? Like, would you really seek him out? I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So I got together in, a, in this group. Uh, about eight of us got together. It's called Raw. What it was, all this was, like, this is not anything crazy. This was eight guys that got together on a weekly basis for 10 weeks. And each night, one guy told his story. Where do you come from? What was it like growing up? What's come against you in your life? Where are you at in your marriage? Where are you at in your relationship? What are you struggling with? Like, just be barebone exposed, like, tell the world who you are. And we came into a place where we had eight guys that got together and knew each other intimately. Like, we all have, whether we like to admit it or not, we all have a desire to know and be known. And when you get around a group of guys who truly know you and love you unconditionally, regardless of your past transgressions or what you're currently in, and they love you enough not to just call to you and be like, oh, it's okay, I feel so sorry for you, but to challenge you and say, you are not living right. Like, you need to get this under control for your sake and the sake of your family. But not only just to correct you, but to come alongside of you and disciple you and to shepherd you into that. Not just saying, hey, fix it, but hey, let me show you how to do this. Like, let me show you biblically how you can handle this matter. So I had these men come alongside of me, and we're all struggling in different ways, but at the same time, we're all struggling in the same ways. And these guys come alongside of me, and they say, hey, like, let us disciple you. So about six weeks into this thing, like, I'm starting to feel it. I'm starting to feel the weight of the Lord calling me. But I've got so much guilt and shame of, a, you know, the past at this point eight years, nine years of just completely living wrong. I was like, I barely even got a marriage to hang on to. Like, I can't go back. There is no way the Lord would accept me knowing what I did. Like, I've been an alcoholic. I've been a drug addict. I still am an alcoholic. I still am a drug addict. Like, I've been in adulterous relationships. Like, there is no way the Lord wants me back. Like, I am just too far gone. And we had a rainy, stormy day, and I took the Bible outside, and I sat on the back porch, and I just cracked it open, and I started reading, right? And I started reading in Romans. And for the first time in my life, I started reading the Bible, not 
listening to stories that some guy was telling me from a pulpit, not from a historical aspect, like, hey, don't do this, do this. Like, I started reading it, like, really, truly trying to read it for myself, and the words were literally, like, almost jumping off the page at me. Like, things that never made sense before were being spoken into my life, and I was like, I see this. Like, I'm reading Romans, and I'm reading about this wild vine that's being grafted into the family, and the Lord's coming to me, he's going, that's you. Like, you are that wild vine. I'm grafting you in. Like, this is the opportunity I'm giving you. And this God of wrath completely turns in my mind to this God of love and grace and forgiveness, and I fall on my face right then. And I just gave it over. I was like, God, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm so sick of living this way. I can't do this to my wife. I can't do this to my kids. Like, this is breaking me. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but whatever you've got, it's got to be better than this. And I fell on my face and, and gave my life to Christ. Come to find out, my wife did the same thing about a week before me, but she was too afraid to tell me that she had gotten saved. So, uh, so now we're, we're like, we're starting to move together, okay? So my wife is, my wife is starting to, to pursue the Lord a little bit, and I'm doing the same, and I'm like, man, like, this is good. Like, I've got these good guys around me that are growing me and discipling me, and I'm starting to read the Word, and, like, I'm being encouraged. And then I go to work one morning, and I start to sit down and have my quiet time. Like I said, man, things, life's good. Things are good. And the Lord says, he's like, hey, I need you to go home and I need you to make things right with your wife. And I was like, well, what are we talking about making it right? Like, what are we calling to do? He's like, as open and transparent as you've been with the men in your life, your wife deserves the same thing. Like, you go give it over to her and you trust me. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. Like, I'm, I'm liking the way this, this Christianity is feeling. Like, this is feeling good. Like, I'm getting lifted up. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Like, where, where's this coming from? Like, why do I have to do this? To the point where I start calling people, right? I'm like, hey, so, uh, so I was uh, talking to God this morning, and uh, he said I needed to do this. What do you think? <laughs> like, see how crazy that is? I'm like, it's just, you know, baby Christian mentality, right? Like, hey, I feel the Lord telling me that I need to go confess, but is there anything that says I need to confess? And uh, Les being the guy he is, he's like, I, I explained to him, like, hey, the Lord is, I said, I feel like, well, I'm not feel like I, the Lord is telling me to go home and to make things right with my wife. I was like, but there, is there anything in the Bible that says I have to do that? He's like, um, well, I'm, one, I'm not going to answer that question. And he's like, I'll tell you two things. He's like, if the Lord's calling you to do that, nothing else matters. He's like, if that's what the Lord is calling you to do, you're called to obedience. Nothing else matters. He's like, number two, if that's what the Lord's calling you to do, you better be sure about it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. I better be pretty sure about that one. But he's like, all right, man, so I'm praying for you. Do whatever you need to do. So I sat at my desk. I didn't stay there for probably five more minutes. And I folded up my stuff, and I got in the truck, and I started driving. I started going back to the house. And I was like, like, I said, Lord, like, do you realize what you're asking me to do right now? Like, do you understand? Like, I know you're there. I know you see what's happening. You know that I'm about 20 minutes out from the house right now, and I'm going to tell my wife that I have been an alcoholic, a drug addict, things she doesn't know, 
Like, she knows I drink. She doesn't know I've been on drugs. She definitely doesn't know that I've been in adulterous relationships. You want me to go, like, lay this on her lap right now? Like, do you understand how crazy this is? And the Lord convicts me in this moment. He's like, you've been trying to do this all on your, all on your own for the past 10 years. He's like, when are you just going to buckle and just trust me? Like, do you believe I'm a sovereign God whose plans are to prosper you or not? Like, this is what the obedience I'm calling you to. We've been here at Red Oak Church. We've been going through the book of Luke for the past, uh, past few months. And it was so convicting as we got to the portion in Luke where he's talking, he's telling them to count the cost of discipleship. Like he's saying, sit down and count the cost. Like you need to understand, like the Lord is not interested in your emotional highs and like these feelings that we like to, you know, well up and like, whoo, yeah, like love this emotion. Like he's not interested in your emotion. He's interested in your obedience. Like that's what he desires. Like too many of us want his salvation, but we don't want to make him Lord of our life. Like give me the salvation. You can keep the word. You can keep the gospel. I just want the salvation part. Like, I want freedom for the ramifications of my sin, but I don't necessarily want to be in obedience to the Lord. So he's calling me to that, right? So I make it home. I get, I get home, and I'm still kind of on the fence about where, how this is going to go down. And uh, my wife's kind of excited. It's peculiar that I'm home like 10 o'clock in the morning, but we go and we sit down in our room and we just kind of start talking and, and it just starts coming out. Like I start telling her, telling her what's been going on and that's been going on for the past, you know, at this point, it's been about eight years. So when you sit down and you tell your wife that for the past eight out of your nine years of marriage, like you've just been a complete wreck and that you've completely screwed up. Like I'm expecting, I'm thinking I'm, I'm at least going to get hit twice but I might make it to the door before she gets anything lethal in her hands. But honestly, what I'm thinking, I was like, like the Lord's called me to this, but I'm going to be left alone at the end of the day. Like when this is all said and done, we're going to leave this house. My wife is going to get the kids. She's going to leave and I'm going to, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be alone. And I start getting this image again, my head again, like this is a wrathful God. Like, he really doesn't have my best interest in mind. But about the time that started to well up, I'm pouring my heart out to my wife, and I'm just asking, like, forgive me, forgive me. Like, I've cried like I never cried before. Like, I am pouring my heart out to my wife, just begging for forgiveness. And she put her hand on the back of my head, and she grabbed my head, and I was like, oh, here it comes. Like, she's getting ready to hit me. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) she, she grabbed a handful of hair, and then her hand just relaxed. And she said, I love you, and I forgive you. And if you know my wife, she is a firecracker. She is from South Carolina, and she, she's got personality. We'll put it that way. And forgiveness is not what I would expect from her. Not at all. Like, I expected the wrath. And she said, I don't know how, but I, I'm seeing what God's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life, and somehow he's in this. And it may not be perfect, and it may, it may be hard, but we're going to have a decision to make. So let's just go with that. 
So from that point forward, we sat down. We said, okay, like this is decision time, right? Either our marriage is going to work or it's not, but we need to figure out why it's going to work. So we sat down and we completely bore our souls to each other. Like she opened up about things that she had never told me and I opened up about things I had never told her. And we said, let's just get all the dirty laundry out on the table right here and right now. And then we'll decide from there what we want to do. So we did. We aired it all out. And the decision wasn't made. But one thing we did decide was that she was going to pursue Christ and make him the Lord of her life. And I was going to pursue him. And I was going to make him the Lord of my life. And whatever he willed out of that would happen. So then the transformation that happened in my own heart is now I'm not loving my wife to get validation out of her for her to tell me that I'm a good man and I'm doing things right. What I'm doing is I'm loving my wife the way God commanded me to, the way he does in Ephesians 5 where he says, love, you know, love your bride the way Christ loves the church and lays himself down for her. So I started writing my, my wife notes every day, just telling her how much joy she gave me, how much I loved her. And at the beginning, those, those notes got wadded up, and they got thrown in the trash. She wouldn't even read them. And then a few months later, I'd find one in a purse. And then a year later, I started seeing them on the fridge. And what I learned to do was instead of acting out of validation and trying to get a response out of everything I did with my wife, what I learned was that I'm just going to act out of, out of obedience with Christ, and regardless of what response I get from her, I can take my validation in knowing that I'm doing what he's called me to do, and I'm loving her the way that she's, he's called me to love her, and that my validation is in him and him alone. It is, not, it is not hinged on the response from another broken person. And she fought me. Naturally, she did. Like, she didn't want my love. And not only that, she definitely didn't want to show me any affection. But what she did respond to was consistency. And people ask us, like, how did you turn your marriage around? Like, how did you do it? There was no benchmark moment. Like, there was no big swing. There wasn't one day where it just all came together and it all made sense. What it was, was it was literally months. I'm talking 18, 20, like almost two years of consistency to build trust, to say, I see the new man. And one January morning, my wife got up and she came in. I was getting ready for work. She came in. She threw her arms around me, and she just started crying. She was crying on my, crying on my shoulder. And she looked at me. She said, I, I believe you. I said, you believe me? She's like, I believe you. One morning, she just got up and gave it to Christ and said, he's a changed man. Like, I see you living for the Lord. I see you pursuing him, and you're not the same man you were. And that I can live with. And when we put our relationship, we put God in the center of our relationship, and it was no longer about two people, like, trying to validate each other. It was just the understanding that, hey, if we're truly in love, like, if I truly love my wife the way that Christ loves the church, then it's an unconditional love. So regardless of how she acts, regardless of my responses or my brokenness, we're just two broken people that are pursuing Christ in this marriage. And that unconditional love should flow through us. So regardless of what she does or what I do, we love each other out of the unconditional love and forgiveness that Christ has given us. And that takes so much pressure out of the marriage. Because now we can have open conversations. Because I know that our relationship isn't hinged on my performance. Our marriage isn't, re 
hinged on what I can provide. It isn't hinged on the validation. If I'm not giving her those things, she feels free to tell me that. But we just love each other unconditionally out of the, you know, out of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that Christ has shown us in our own lives. I want you guys uh, to turn, if you can. If not, I can get it here. Philippians 3, 8. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Then by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I count it all as lost. I count it all as lost, not for my own righteousness, but from the imputed righteousness of God. Like Christ's son, dead on the cross. Like that's it. I spent my whole life trying to work my way to salvation. I had this idea that if I just worked hard enough, eventually I would get to a point where I'd be acceptable for before Christ. When the whole time Christ is saying, you are so far off from being acceptable. But we do this. We go, Lord, I, I know you've, you've forgiven all my sins, but I'll take this one. And whenever we don't give all their sins over to him and allow him, to, allow him to take that burden, all we're doing is we're saying, you know what, Lord, like your blood was good enough for that, but it's probably not good enough for this. Like what a slap in the face that is to our Savior. To say your atoning blood is good enough to cover these sins, but this sin right here, I'm going to go fix this on my own. Like I got this. You're good for that, but I'm going to have to take this one. He's saying this, it's not of my own righteousness. Like, I have done nothing to deserve this. But Christ loves me. And he died for me. And because of that and that alone, can I have salvation? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we, uh, we're just in awe that you, the creator of the universe, would give your son, die for our sins, just so that you could have a relationship with us, and that you loved us so much that you came, came to satisfy the law and to bind us to you. Father, I pray for the hearts of the men in this room right now. I pray that you turn our hearts of stone to flesh. 
soften us to hear your words. But Lord, I know that there are men in this room that are just like I was and just like I am still. There are men in this room that are content to try to fight their battles on their own with the drugs, with alcohol, addictions, pornography. Like, Lord, we are so broken. We are so far off. But, Lord, you come to forgive our iniquities and offer us salvation. And we don't have to do this alone. Lord, I pray that in this time that you would just move in these men's hearts and come in and comfort them and let them know that, that this isn't something that has to be done alone. That there are men in this room that love them and that you love them more than any of us could even possibly fathom. And that your forgiveness is available, that your love is available, and that you've come to bind up the brokenhearted and to free us from these bonds Lord, that we don't have to be slaves to these addictions in our life. We don't have to be slaves to the things of this world. If we put our trust in you, you promise that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And what a precious gift that is. For I thank you for the men who've come, knowing that nothing is coincidence. No man just ended up here. That they are here to hear your words. And they're here because you love them. And Father, we just want to praise you. I'm just amazed still at how awesome you are that you brought this many men here to hear your word and just for you to love in them and to pour in them and invest in them. And what a, what a precious gift that is. Father, we love you. We, uh, we praise you. Amen.